0: Welcome to Babel Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John talks with Ambassador James Jeffrey about Turkey's Middle East policy. Then, John, Natasha, and I discuss what Turkey's presence looks like in the Middle East.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Ambassador James Jeffrey joined the Wilson Center in December 2020 as the chair of the Middle East program, just coming off a term as the Secretary of State's Special Representative for Syria Engagement and Special Envoy to Defeat ISIS from 2018 to 2020. From 2008 to 2010, he was the U.S. ambassador to Turkey and followed that with a term as the U.S. ambassador to Iraq. Jim, welcome to Babel.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me today, John. I'm looking forward to having a discussion, having a debate.
0: I'm not sure we're going to debate. I'd like to dry out, though, a little bit. You know, when you were ambassador to Turkey, it, it feels to me like Turkey didn't really have much of a Middle East strategy in, in the late 2000s. It seemed to me that a lot of Turkey's strategy was zero problems with the neighbors. What changed? Was it really just the Arab Spring or was something else driving a a change in, in Turkey's relationship to the Middle East?
2: I think three things changed from the Turkey that I worked with. So what changed? Three things. First of all, it begins with Erdogan. He became more dictatorial, more reluctant to listen to advisers, be either economic or diplomatic advisers, more sure of himself, and more determined to drive an Erdogan policy. A lot of that is Erdogan and his different approach to politics. The second thing is Because of his push for a constitutional change, which everybody thought was to eliminate democracy because people are very skeptical about Erdogan, it turned out it pushed him into a far more democratic system with a need to have a parliamentary majority in a different way than he needed it before. And as his party, the AKP, started losing votes, he had to find a coalition partner. He found that in the National Action Party under Davlet Pachali, which is an extremely nationalistic successor to the essentially right-wing violent movement, the Gray Wolves. And they have pulled him to an anti-foreign, anti-Western approach. That's the second thing. Then the third thing is Erdogan feels that he was repeatedly disappointed by the West. Uh, he cites the annan plan for Cyprus that he agreed to. The Turkish Cypriots overwhelmingly voted for. The Greek Cypriots turned it down. The action of the EU was to invite Greece in without resolving the internal conflict. He was unhappy with France in particular, but also Germany, thumbing down his effort to try to have a serious accession road a pass forward uh, for EU membership. He was unhappy with uh, the Armenian reaction to his outreach. And he had lingering concerns about the United States from 2003, because the Etrivit government said under no conditions would it support an American invasion of Iraq. Erdogan said, I will, but I need my parliament to vote on it. The parliament did vote on it. They voted a majority for it. But because of the rules for something as important as launching an invasion out of your country, given its history of getting into World War I was just such a thing in 1915, you didn't get the full majority to vote for it. But we then blamed unfairly our total failure post conquest of Iraq on the northern offensive. You needed a fall guy, that was Turkey. He resented this very, very greatly. Then finally it was. We and the rest of the coalition embracing the YPG, the Syrian branch of the PKK, as our ally against the Islamic State. Now, he went along with that in 2014. Uh, What changed was, first of all, uh, he was forced into a coalition, or he had to go into a coalition with uh, Bashar Secondly, the ceasefire with the PKK broke down in 2015. And thirdly, he began to see that the United States was not just helping the Kurds fight the Islamic State in Kurdish areas, but that we were using it to expand into Arab areas, Euphrates, as our primary infantry to take down the entire Islamic State. This created three problems for him. First of all, he saw this as expanding the power of the pseudo-PKK by giving it Essentially, enough weapons to uh, field a 100,000 man uh, force, a man and woman force for these people. Secondly, Erdogan believed with some accuracy that the Sunni Arab areas along the Euphrates and in Mambich were areas where he had influence and he didn't want the Kurds moving into them. Thirdly, he thought, he couldn't prove it, I can't prove it, that deals were made behind closed doors in the field to essentially give the YPG. PYD, the entire north of Syria, if they would do something that cost them tens of thousands of casualties and move into the Arab areas. So for all of those reasons, he became very, very bitter at the United States. This fed into not an Erdogan fear, but a fear of most Turks that the great powers, because they think in 19th century terms, the great powers are always trying to keep Turkey down by playing off various elements. To their flanks, the Armenians, the Greeks, the Kurds, to try to put pressure on Turkey. And Turks all the time cite. Uh, Something that essentially no American knows is that Woodrow Wilson tried to uh, advocate for an independent Kurdistan, as he did an independent Albania in 1918, 1919. This is writ from above for Turks as part of a hundred year plot against them by Washington. And of course, nobody in Washington knows that they're participating in such a plot. So for all of these reasons, it's become very, very difficult to deal with Erdogan's Turkey.
0: So what you've described is a combination of emotions and tactics from a strategic point of view. Can you discern any desired Turkish end state? What are the goals? What are they trying to do in an enduring way? What are they trying to secure?
2: We do not know because this is totally Erdogan and he is not clear. When he had a high-powered foreign minister... David Olu. David Olu was out there talking all the time about zero problems. Turkey as a state and as a population is Europe monkey. That is, the orientation of the Turks, and for that matter, the Ottoman, largely the Ottoman Empire before it was Europe. The Balkans, the Caucasus, the Black Sea area, and deeper into Europe in one or another way, be it the two marches on Vienna, be it the almost 4 million uh, Gastarbeiter families are descendants of them in Germany. The Turks are economically united with the European Union, with the EU Customs Union. They are focused on eventual EU membership, however unlikely that is. It is simply not a place that fits well into the Middle East, but by its power, its geographic location, its shared islamic religion it is also a middle eastern country erdogan has tried to focus it more on the middle east with limited success because there is no strategy there is no particular interest Uh, there are not significant trade interests they get some oil and there is no other major trade
0: and it feels like as you you said they're getting more involved in the middle east certainly their eastern mediterranean strategy has drawn the eastern
2: mediterranean is an offshoot Of two things. One is their need for energy. The Achilles heel of the Turkish economy long has been their current account deficit. But the second and bigger thing is their long-standing battle with the Greeks about essentially the necklace of islands stretching from Cyprus, Limnos, Greek islands held by a hostile partner right off the coast of Turkey. And the implications of that in military, in economic in navigation, and in undersea exploration terms. This is a long-term struggle between the two, where Greece wraps uh, international law, as Greek sees it, around itself, sovereignty and the law of the sea. The Turks wrap around themselves about eight or nine international agreements. Erdogan moving this into the eastern Mediterranean, again, first of all, that was not a move into the Middle East. It was a move against Cyprus and against Greece, as Turkey would see it in their long-standing struggle. And they did it in such a way that they got not only the European Union lined up against them, but also countries that had been working with Cyprus, that is uh, Israel, Egypt, and even Lebanon.
0: Although it it extends even further, it extends into Libya. Were you surprised that the Turks got involved in Libya's civil No, for two reasons.
2: The Libya adventure is a spin-off of two things. One is the participants in this consortium for the Eastern Mediterranean stumbled into this, I think, in terms of Israel and Lebanon fairly innocently, but of course, Cyprus, at the end of the day, while they have economic interest, their interest number one is confronting Turkey. And therefore, it was unwise of the others to think, gee should we go into this while excluding Turkey? They let themselves be entrapped. And Turkey's response was to figure out a way to get around that. Libya offered them an opportunity. The other thing is the Turks have a long-standing relationship with Libya that goes back to family ties. It was one area of the Middle East that they were very interested in. So they see Libya as a, a special place that they know well as compared to most of the Arab world. The Libyan thing is primarily a spin-off of the conflict on the Eastern Med because their main goal is to get a deal with Libya where they get a very expansive set of sea claims to counter the sea claims that the Cypriots are making. And then the other thing is Turkey despite its friendly relations at the state level with Russia, sees itself as a deterrent to Russia in the region. It doesn't want Russia to expand, particularly in the region. It sees that as a threat. They have enough problems with Russia to its north and to its northeast in the Caucasus. Thus, the Turks have taken a tough position against Russia, both in Syria and in Libya.
0: As you point out, it feels like the Turks have almost no partners in any of this. They have
2: no partners.
0: Well, I mean, to some extent, they cooperate with the Qataris, which is a small but wealthy partner to have.
2: Okay, so that's, that's one.
0: Right. But do you think that's intentional? I mean, there are increasing tensions with the Saudis, as you've noted, over the Brotherhood. Certainly the Emiratis are very concerned about Turkey's relationship to the Brotherhood. They have a worsening relationship with Israel, their relationship with Iran has always been a little bit strained, as you've noted. Is it intentional that they're doing this largely on their own?
2: It is a manifestation of two things. First of all, I always underline Erdogan. The second is a general Turkish belief that, uh, and it goes to Turkish sayings, the only friend of a Turk is a Turk, and a kind of belief that the outside world is trying to stop Turkey's inevitable growth to be a major power. So therefore, doing deals with people, A, do we need to do deals with people, we're so powerful ourselves, and B, they'll only cheat us and get in our way. It is extraordinary how few friends Turkey has and how it has badly treated the friends it does have, which I would include the United States in that category.
0: What does that mean about its treaty partners and NATO using NATO as an instrument either to help secure aspects of the Middle East or partnering with Turkey on common goals in the Mediterranean? Can Turkey be a partner or does this mean that, that Turkey is unable to be a partner with its, its allies?
2: That question is more to NATO than it is to Turkey. What is NATO today? It is no longer an alliance whose sole purpose is to deter the Soviet Union. Turkey was a very important member of that alliance. It is now a loose military cooperation vehicle between the US and Europe to deal with a variety of problems and they're almost boutique problems on these boutique things, Turkey has been across the board helpful. So therefore, you know, I just scratch my head and say, "Wait a second, it doesn't have an overarching purpose. Rather, it has a set of boutique responses to threats on its far boundaries and areas of instability where a Western military presence can be helpful. Turkey in each one of these things has been, A, very helpful. I know of no operation that Turkey didn't participate in other than the Sari Libyan one. You can't really do a whole lot in the broader Middle East, uh, the Caucasus and such, without Turkey's airspace and access to the Black Sea. So therefore, it is both a good partner on all of NATO's boutique activities. So from that standpoint, it's an extremely important and very, very useful NATO ally. Now. You then get into, well, but what about the NATO philosophy? What about democracy? Hey, Turkey today is far more democratic than Franco's Spain. And it was a member of NATO for uh, three decades, two decades.
0: And of course, throughout this period, the role of the military in Turkey has changed drastically. The Turkish general staff is not nearly as independent as it was. Has the Erdogan strategy toward the Middle East help move the military to a different position? And does the military have a similar approach to the Middle East that, that Erdogan does at this point?
2: Nobody has the same approach to the Middle East that Erdogan does. As I said, Turkey has serious national security interests that all Turks share. That's the Eastern Mediterranean and Aegean. That is the Six threats from Syria, that is the PKK threat from Iraq, and behind that, the concern that Iran would dominate Iraq, and undercut Turkey's cozy relationship with the Kurdish Federation in the north of Iraq, which is one of Turkey's uh, few partners, if you will. But the uh, military, on one hand, as an internal player, has been almost entirely stripped of power under Erdogan, with much encouragement, by the way, by the EU, less so by the Bush administration, but certainly by the EU. So he got them out of politics, which was a good thing, not a bad thing. Secondly, however, he has given them very important uh, missions for them to carry out independent military operations, and they've gotten suddenly very good at it, as we saw in Idlib, Tripoli, and Nagorno-Karabakh in the last 11 months. So the military basically has worked out very well, and I've seen this from up close, very well, their relationship with Erdogan. It is a very strong relationship beginning with the Minister of Defense, General Akar. I see no tension particularly between them.
0: You've attributed a lot to Erdogan's personal approach, Erdogan's personal drivers. Do you see in a post-Erdogan age a natural role for Turkey in the region, a sort of reversion to something? Or do you think that that all routes are open and, and Turkey may maintain a number of aspects that the Erdogan introduced?
2: Yeah. Once again, Turkey's, quote, Middle Eastern policy falls into two categories. One is a continued concern about its near abroad for existential or critically important reasons. That near abroad is the Caucasus, the Black Sea, Iran, Northern Iraq, and Iraq generally, Syria, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Aegean, and the Balkans. Turkey's independent foreign policy for many decades has revolved around those areas in dealing with challenges coming from either the Kurds, or Iran, or Russia, or the Armenians, or the Greeks, and its interests, particularly in undersea exploration. That won't change. The broader Middle East policy is essentially Erdogan's fantasy baseball, with this idea that he, has, that he is some kind of spiritual leader of the Muslim brothers, and they are some kind of fifth column that can undermine Sunni Arab states. This is all hogwash. I didn't meet people who were particularly pro-Muslim brothers, and I spent a lot of time with the more Islamic folks in places outside of Istanbul and Ankara when I was ambassador there. Their orientation, and many of them were business uh, folks, that's uh, much of the core of Erdogan support. These guys all want to export to America, to the Far East, and to Europe. They have little interest in the Middle East. They haven't traveled there. It's rare to find someone who speaks Arabic other than diplomats. And that's the Middle East policy that Erdogan has.
0: Jim, Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining us.
2: All right. Take care, John. Thanks.
1: Next up, John, Natasha and I discuss what Turkey's presence looks like in the Middle East. So to start us off, Ambassador Jeffrey talked a lot about Turkey's Middle East policy. And when you guys have been in the Middle East, how much did you hear about Turkey and what did you actually hear?
0: When I started going to the Middle East, Turkey really didn't have a Middle East policy, as Ambassador Jeffrey suggested. It's it's new. And and there's a memory of the Ottoman period, which people in the Middle East weren't especially fond of for the most part. But there wasn't really a relevance for Turkey. They didn't know Turks. Turks don't speak Arabic. There aren't a lot of Arabs who speak Turkish. It felt very, very remote and historical, but historical not in a good way, historical in some ways in, in almost a bad way.
3: Interestingly, though, I was in uh, I was in Syria around the time of the Gaza flotilla raid. So if you remember this, this was in 2010. Turkish nationals were trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Gaza, and it was raided, and then several Turkish nationals were killed or arrested. And in Syria, this was a very big deal, as it was throughout the the rest of the Arab world. And there was actually a huge banner thanking Turkey as well throughout the streets of of Damascus at the time, too. So I think that even maybe 10 years ago, Erdogan was trying to make a name for himself within the Middle East.
1: And what about more recently?
3: More recently, that has, of course, changed. You see Turkish interventionism in, in Libya, in Syria in Iraq to a certain degree, and in Nagorno-Karabakh a little bit further north. And you have a very pronounced Turkish presence in Syria where you have almost 10,000 Turkish troops along the front lines and over 70 Turkish outposts as well.
0: And I think when I first went to Turkey in the 2000s, there was a strategy of zero problems with the neighbors. And Turkey's profound effort was how it could deal with these borders that that seemed to have a lot of problems, but Turkey didn't have problems with these countries. And now what we've seen consistently is not only do there seem to be problems on almost all the borders, but it feels like Turkey is exacerbating the problems because Turkey feels insecure, because Turkey feels threatened, because Turkey feels a need to reach out. And it's remarkable in a relatively short period of time, just how much Turkey has gone from we will have good relations with everybody to a sense that Turkey has antagonistic relations, at least on some level, with almost everybody.
3: And and that changed significantly with the Arab Spring, I should say. Erdogan and Assad went on a family holiday together prior to the Arab Spring. And now, obviously, those relations have soured significantly And as John was mentioning, this perceived threat has really affected how Turkey operates in the region, not just with Syrians, but also with the PKK as well. There were negotiations with the PKK, which is recognized as a a terrorist group by both Turkey and the United States. But those negotiations fell apart when it became clear that there was going to be this Kurdish autonomous administration within the northeast of Syria. And so those perceived threat levels really elevated and I think very quickly changed how Turkey perceived the Middle East.
0: And there's a way the Middle East, the way the Middle East perceived Turkey changed as well after the Arab Spring. There was a sense that Erdogan was intimately tied to Muslim Brotherhood movements, to Muslim Brotherhood-led governments. There still is a high degree of animus in Egypt toward Turkey. And there are a number of Egyptians not all members of the Muslim Brotherhood who have emigrated to Turkey in exile from Egypt because of a sense that if you had a, an Islamist orientation in Egypt, it's no longer safe. And, and the place where a number of people have gone is Turkey.
1: Natasha, you've worked a lot on Syria in the past 10 years. Can you describe how you've directly seen a lot of these play, these situations play out?
3: The first thing that transpired was essentially millions of Syrian refugees flowing across the border. And that was the immediate response that, that Turkey had to kind of manage. And that also sort of shifted its relationship with the, with the European Union as well, because the European Union saw them as kind of the last stand for, for refugees before that they, they immigrated to Europe and they wanted to stem that flow. So Turkey became a very valued partner in that. And so their management of the refugee crisis, I think, especially at the beginning, was quite a model. And there was a lot of reporting on, on the camps that they set up and, and things like that. And, and sort of the more warm welcome, I should say, as opposed to, to a lot of the policies that were ongoing in Lebanon, for example. And I think that they built up a lot of support amongst the Syrian opposition, especially because of this. And then that's gradually developed over the course of the past 10 years, pretty significantly in both the Northwest and in the Northeast, where Turkey has a, has a very heavy hand. And a lot of Syrians, their future is basically belonging to Turkey. Turkey has opened three universities in northern Syria. They've developed post offices. They have, as I mentioned, police cadres there. There's thousands of Turkish soldiers there as well. A lot of the educational curriculum is in Turkish and in Arabic. I, I think that they have developed a territory or a safe zone, as some people are calling it. And it's quite difficult to see how they're going to withdraw from that. And you saw earlier last year in March where there were these significant drone strikes on regime installations And that really mitigated, I think, any kind of offensive in those areas for a considerable period of time. When I speak to Syrians, they generally think that the Turks are there to stay. So I don't, at this point, see an exit strategy for them, and I don't think that they want it.
0: And this is one of the really interesting contrasts between the U.S. presence in Iraq and the Turkish presence in northern Syria. The U.S. presence in Iraq was never going to be permanent. There were some efforts to create the American University of of Iraq, Soleimani, and things like that, but there always is a sense that, that the U.S. would not have a deep, enduring presence. Turkey may have a very deep, enduring presence. That border may become a smudged border, and what that means for the future of Syria, what that means for people who live there, what it means for Turkey. I think, is much more unclear than we had anticipated. We're used to to borders really mattering in the Middle East and being very bright. And this may be a different kind of border, almost, not quite, but almost like the Israeli border with Lebanon for a time, when they felt they had to have an enduring presence. They were deeply tied into local governance. And there ended up being two Lebanese borders, one that was the international border, and then another border where Israeli control dropped away. We may see the same thing happening uh, in northern Syria.
1: Can we tease that out a little bit? How does Turkey's presence in Syria on the ground feel different than Russia's presence in Syria or the U.S. presence in Syria?
3: I mean, it's substantially different night and day. I mean, both the U.S. and Russia do not want a substantial footprint in Syria in the way that Turkey is developing in the Northwest. And I mean, in addition to that is the the reconstruction issue. Turkey has invested quite a lot in reconstruction, whereas Russia has not as of yet.
0: And there's of course, there's a way in which the economics of Turkey are always intertwined with the politics of Turkey. This is certainly one of the things that that President Erdogan has done since he came to power decades ago, is business people have a key role in the government. The government advances the interests of business people, whether it's people in construction, people in trucking, people in other places. And I think as we've seen Turkey expanded security interests into Syria and other parts of the region, there is a way in which Turkish businesses are involved. Turkish security is involved, Turkish diplomats are involved, Turkish intelligence is involved. It's it's a multifaceted effort, which ultimately is all connected to Erdogan and the Turkish leadership, not quite in the way the Chinese government brings everybody together, but in a way that's a lot more reminiscent of the way the Chinese government operates than the way the US government or the French government or the British government operate when they're working in the Middle East. You know, after all, this is this is all a border area. You don't have to extend very far beyond the national borders. And, and the, one of the most interesting conversations I ever had about Turkish foreign policy was with a trucking magnate who could tell me exactly how many days every place was in the Middle East and how much was going back and forth and what was going back and forth and who, who in these individual countries was tied into the business relationships that were tied to Turkish trucking. And a lot of those were political figures.
3: But I think this also points to how important Turkey is in this equation. Russia and the U.S. have limited commitments within Syria. And they recognize, I think both of them recognize, maybe Russia even more so, that Turkey does not have a limited commitment. And that's quite clear based off of the number of personnel it's had, the investments it's made. And Recognizing that as very important to the future of Syria is something that clearly Putin has recognized. And I think the US is now struggling to kind of deal with that reality. And it'll be interesting to see how the Biden administration deals with that reality in the future.
1: So, what does everything the two of you just described, all of those business ties, the construction of universities, what does all of that mean for the durability of Turkey's presence in the Middle East?
0: I still think that Master Jeffrey's right that there's a way in which Turkey doesn't obviously fit into the Middle East. There aren't a lot of Turks who speak Arabic. Uh, Arabic and Turkish are really different languages. Turkey's a big country and a big economy in a way that that makes other countries feel threatened. I think at core. People probably do think of Turkey as a European country, but Turkey's always going to have interests in the Middle East. And the question is, if Turkey's not going to dominate the region, can it find a different model for engaging deeply? And I think Turkey's, frankly, still struggling for that. They overreached a little bit in the Arab Spring. I think they're going to have to be careful how they have an enduring presence in Syria. There's an easy way for people to feel intimidated by Turkey. But I think Turkey's going to be relevant. In some ways, it's a similar problem to the problem Iran has in the Middle East. Iran is a country don't speak Arabic. Iran is a Persian Shia state in a Sunni Arab world. And they're a bit of an outsider. And a lot of Arabs feel very threatened by Iran. Turkey's Turkey is going to have to find its way through its differentness to also find ways to advance its interests. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSASMideast.